choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 281 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Homeward Bound. Continuing from episode 280. There was now calls for optimism around mission control at the Telmu station where the limb's vital environmental signs were being constantly monitored, the readings of carbon dioxide concentrations aboard Aquarius had been steadily dropping all day long. Less than six hours after Ed Smiley's ingenious air scrubber went online, the cockpit CO2 had dropped to a scant 0.2% of the overall air mass, a mere gaseous trace that could barely be detected by the onboard sensors, much less do the astronauts any harm. At the ENCO station, matters seemed similarly well in hand. The tight, passive thermal control role that Max Faget had insisted on had been successfully achieved shortly after the PC plus two burn. The ship's controlled rotation allowed the limb to point its high-gain antenna directly toward Earth, keeping the astronauts in constant voice contact with the ground without the need for all the frantic antenna switching of the day before. But, as Wednesday dawn gave way to morning and morning gave way to afternoon, things were not as hopeful at the consoles in Houston as they were in the spacecraft speeding away from the moon. The numbers on the screens were not nearly as promising as the ENCOs and the TELMUs. The worst data was appearing in the front row at the Fido, Guido, and Retro consoles. When Aquarius fired its descent engine for the PC Plus 2 burn, the maneuver was designed not just to increase the ship's speed, but to tweak its trajectory. In order to enter Earth's atmosphere safely, Apollo 13 had to approach at an inclination no shallower than 5.3 degrees and no steeper then 7.7 degrees. If they came in at 5.2 degrees or below, the blunt end of the command module would skip off the top of the atmosphere and go straight back into space, entering a permanent orbit around the sun. If they came in at 7.8 degrees or above, the spacecraft would be able to re-enter the atmosphere but at so steep an angle and with such a high g-force that the crew would likely be crushed well before they ever hit the water. Either way, the celebratory splashdown that the recovery forces were anticipating in the South Pacific would not take place. The PC Plus 2 burn was intended to avert both of these catastrophes, 
positioning Apollo 13 in the center of the narrow reentry corridor at an approach angle of 6.5 degrees. The tracking data that appeared on the flight dynamics screens right after the burn indicated that this angle had indeed been achieved. Now, however, 18 hours after the burn, further numbers indicated that that trajectory was becoming mysteriously shallower, falling to 6.3 degrees and below. It was Chuck Dietrich at the retro station who noticed the problem first. Are you following these trajectory numbers? He said off-loop, pushing away from his console and turning to Dave Reed, the flight dynamics officer, sitting to his right. I'm tracking them, Reed answered. What do you make of them? I don't know, Reed said. We're shallow, that's for sure. Definitely. You think we did the burn right? Dietrich asked uncertainly. Heck, Chuck, we have to have done it burn right. Those numbers were solid. The only thing I can figure is that the trajectory data itself is no good. As far away as the ship still is, we may not have a handle on all the tracking arcs. These numbers have been falling for a while now, Dave, Dieterich said. The data's good. If Dieterich and Reed were both correct, and the numbers and the burn were both satisfactory, there weren't many things that could explain the shallowing of the trajectory. The obvious answer was that somewhere along the length of Odyssey or Aquarius, something was venting, producing a tiny propulsive force that was pushing the twin ships off course. But where could that venting be coming from? The dead service module had long since outgassed its last, and any of the systems that could spring leaks, its hydrogen tanks, for instance, or its reaction control thrusters, had been shut down. The conical command module had no such vapor-powered hardware with the exception of its own small attitude thrusters, and those have been shut off with the rest of the ship. The limb was just as unlikely a source of unexplained gas plumes as the command module. Nearly all of its systems had been offline since the PC plus two burn and those systems that weren't shut down were being closely monitored by the tailmew and the control officers. If any extraneous gas was escaping from any line or tank, it would almost certainly have been spotted by now. The options for correcting the eroding trajectory were few. If something was found to be venting, and if the location of that leak could be pinpointed, it would be possible to roll the spacecraft stack over and allow the exhaust to blow the ships the other way. This presumably would steepen Apollo 13's angle until it crept up toward the higher end of the corridor. Finding the source of the venting wasn't likely, though, and unless the mysterious shallowing abruptly stopped, the only alternative, one that the overworked Fidos, Guidos, and Retros did not even want to consider was to power the limb back up again, realign its temperamental guidance platform, and light the descent engine for yet another burn. If this angle doesn't stabilize itself, Dietrich said, 
We're going to have to fire this thing again. Then let's hope it stabilizes itself, said Reed. But if the Guidos, Fidos, and Retro were going to fire Aquarius's descent engine, the numbers on the screen of the control officer, the man who oversaw the limb's non-environmental systems, would have to cooperate. At the moment, they weren't. As Milt Windier had feared before the PC plus two burn, the pressure in the supercritical helium tank, which was used to force the engine fuel into the combustion chamber, was beginning to climb. The minus 452 degree gas was ordinarily stored at a pressure of 80 pounds per square inch, but helium expands fast, so the tanks were built to withstand many times that force. Only when the contents of the double-hulled canister had boiled above 1,800 pounds per square inch would its rounded walls begin to groan under the strain. At that point, the pressure-relieving burst disc built into the gas line would blow, venting the gas out into space. Although this would relieve the mounting pressure, there would no longer be any way to force fuel into the combustion chamber, and thus virtually no way to burn the engine again if another maneuver was needed. The crew's only hope of relighting their descent engine would depend on there being enough residual fuel left in the lines from the previous burn to support another one. It was never a sure thing how much of this so-called blowdown fuel would be left behind, and relying on it for any subsequent ignitions was a dubious business at best. Now, as Diedrich and Reed somewhat casually discussed the possibility of relighting the engine for yet another mid-course adjustment, Dick Thorson, the control officer, noticed his helium indicator starting to rise. Control, called Glenn Watkins, the propulsion officer in Thorson's back room. Go, Glenn, Thorson answered. Don't know if you are following these readouts, but supercritical helium is going up. I'm following them, Thorson said. What's your best estimate on a burst pressure? We don't know for sure, Watkins answered. We're still studying it, but right now we're looking at 1,881 pounds. And when do we top out there? Not sure on either, Watkins said, but we're looking for it to blow out at about 105 hours. Thorson looked at the mission timer. It was 96 hours into the mission. I want you guys to pull the schematics and make sure we understand what's going on, he said. I want to know how this burst is going to happen, when it's going to happen, and which way it's going to blow when it does happen. I don't want any surprises. For the astronauts in the powered-down spacecraft with the shut-down instrument panel, there was no way of tracking either the rising helium in the tank below their feet or the decaying trajectory pushing them shallower in their re-entry corridor. And at one o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, the ground was almost reluctant to give them the bad news their control panel couldn't. The ten hours since the installation of the lithium hydroxide canister had been busy ones aboard the Aquarius. With the crew spending most of their time monitoring their passive thermal control role, 
discussing power-up procedures that would be needed two days later when Odyssey was brought back online, and consulting with the ground about various methods for charging the command module's tapped-out battery from the limb's four good ones. Although Hayes had managed to strain together a few hours of sleep before the long pre-dawn to post-noon work shift began, Lovell and Swigert hadn't, and around midday, Deke Slayton and Flight Sergeant Willard Hawkins ordered Lovell and Swigert to return to Odyssey for another attempt at sleeping. In the early hours of Wednesday afternoon, the two senior men were once again asleep and Aquarius was once again in the hands of Fred Hayes. How's it going, Fred? Okay, just fine. Okay, uh, we're considering a uh, mid-course correction at 104 hours, and it's only seven feet per second. Uh, and the other option is to uh, keep PTC up, since uh, we may not be able to get back into it again and uh, delay it. So uh, that's the type of thing we're uh, thinking about. But uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, you're pretty much uh, right in the middle of the fairway there. And uh, our present tracking uh, with no mid-course uh, has you uh, with a gamma of 7.11 as opposed to 6.51. So you're already in the quarter. You're just a half a degree uh, between the center and the outer limit and we're going to tweak that up. Okay, that uh, sounds good. Capcom went on to mention that the only complication was the supercritical helium tank pressure, and they did expect the rupture disc to blow on that tank. They did not know the exact time. Mission Control estimated it at 105 hours mission elapsed time. But... Even if the disc did blow early, Mission Control estimated that there was plenty of blowdown capacity in the lines to execute the burn. Fred Hayes responded with, That sounds okay too. Whether any of this was indeed okay with Hayes was unclear from the dispassionate voice that came across on the air-to-ground channel. A change in trajectory serious enough to require a burn was by no means a little drift. Moreover, the idea of another uncontrolled venting from one of the Apollo 13's gas tank, this one inside the descent stage of Hayes' beloved lunar module, could not have sat well with the limb pilot. But if Hayes, temporary heir to the skipper's station, was disturbed by these developments, he was not about to reveal it. That wasn't the way Lovell would have done it, or Conrad, or Armstrong, or any of the other men who had commanded ships out around these parts before. And it wasn't the way Hayes was about to do it now. Those men would have accepted whatever the latest development was and moved on to the next piece of business. Floating at the vacant left-hand station of the limb, Hayes allowed the air-to-ground loop to fall silent, and drifted back to the storage cabinet at the rear of the cockpit. Among the few personal items the crew had brought aboard was a small tape player and a handful of cassettes 
containing songs chosen by the astronauts. Nobody had expected to have much time to listen to music on the way to the moon, but at the end of the week, when the limb had been jettisoned and the crew was heading home with their cargo of Frau Morrow moon rocks, they had planned to break out the tapes and enjoy them. Now, of course, Aquarius was still attached to Odyssey, and the storage space set aside for rocks was empty. But Apollo 13 was indisputably heading home, and Hayes was going to have his music. As Vance Brand listened to the air-to-ground static at his Capcom station, what broke the silence from the spacecraft was not a worried question from the stand-in commander, but the opening chords of The Age of Aquarius, one of the first songs the astronauts had requested when they made up their playlist. In mission control, the controllers listened and turned to each other and smiled. Fred Hayes, it appeared, did not rattle easily. of his tape player down a little, let it float in the air behind him, and drifted forward toward his window. If he had indeed crossed that invisible gravitational line between the earth and the moon, he wanted to take a long final look back. With the feet of the limb pointed toward the moon and the windows angled down in the same direction, the lunar view should be unobstructed. And with his crewmates asleep, and the cockpit silent except for the tiny tune coming from the tape player, the atmosphere for a farewell gaze would be a good one. But suddenly, the atmosphere changed. Just as Hayes approached the right-hand window, a chillingly familiar bang-whoomp shudder shook the ship. He shot his hand out, braced himself against the bulkhead, and froze in mid-float. The sound was essentially the same as Monday night's bang, though it was quieter. The sensation was essentially the same as Monday night's shudder, though it was less violent. The location of the event, however, was utterly different. 
Unless Hayes was mistaken, this disturbance had not come from the service module at the other end of the Aquarius Odyssey stack, but from the limb descent stage below his feet. Hayes swallowed hard. This should be the helium burst disc blowing. If the ground has told you to expect a venting and a moment later your ship bangs and rocks, chances are the two are connected. But viscerally, Hayes, the man who understood Aquarius better than anyone else on board, knew this wasn't true. Burst disc didn't sound this way. They didn't feel this way, and floating cautiously up to his porthole and peering out, he also saw they did not look this way. Just as Jim Lovell had discovered vented gas streaming past his window more than 40 hours ago, Fred Hayes, the limb pilot, was alarmed to see much the same thing outside his window now. Drifting up from the Aquarius descent stage was a thick white cloud of icy snowflakes, looking nothing at all like misty helium streaming from a burst disc. Hayes took a breath and contacted Houston. Capcom Vance Brand froze in his seat. Okay, I uh, understand you saw a thump in the descent stage and a few snowflakes. Uh, we'll take a look down here, see if we can see anything. The effect of this exchange on the men in mission control was electric. Dick Thorson at the control console asked Glenn Watkins, his backup propulsion officer, if he had copied that message. He did, and Glenn informed Thorson that the supercrit helium tank also known as the she-tank, had no change. It was not the burst disc. Next, flight director Jerry Griffin called Thorson wanting an explanation for the bang. All Thorson could say was that it wasn't the she-tank. Capcom transmitted back to Hayes. Uh, Fred, uh, we don't see anything wrong. For example, your she-tank uh, appears to be okay, as far as we can see. As Capcom was speaking with the spacecraft, Flight Director Griffin began polling his controllers on the Flight Director's loop. Bob Hesselmeyer at the Telmu station re-scanned his console, looking past the oxygen readouts, past the lithium hydroxide readouts, past the CO2 and H2O readouts. He noticed something on the battery display. The four irreplaceable power sources in Aquarius's descent stage that, working together, were barely providing enough energy for the exhausted, overtaxed ship. Gradually, the readout for Battery 2 fell below what it should have been and continued to fall steadily lower. If the data was right, something had arced or shorted in the lunar module battery, just as it had arced or shorted in the service module's tank on Monday night. And if there had been a short, the battery, like the oxygen tank, would soon go offline, killing fully one quarter of a power supply that Houston and Grumman were rationing down to the last fraction of an amp. 
So far, the numbers on the screen were too preliminary to be conclusive. They were even too preliminary for Hesselmeyer to pass them on to Griffin. But if Hesselmeyer didn't pass them on to Griffin, Griffin could not pass them on to Brand, and Brand could not pass them on to Hayes. At the moment, that was probably just as well. Standing at his window and looking out at the growing cloud of flakes surrounding the bottom of his limb, Fred Hayes had more than enough burdens of command. Salutations from the snowy foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 281 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Homeward Bound. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thank you for staying subscribed. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Well, I have added some more. And we are now up to 108 on the archive feed. To find that, you can search for Space Rocket History Archive. Should be available on all your podcatchers. Today, we salute our Gemini level donors. There are 16 Gemini donors so far this year. Gemini donors contribute $40 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Gemini donors. Well, I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. Let me give you my sources first. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, an excellent book. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Flight by Chris Kraft. NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription. The Internet Archive. Wikipedia and the Johnson Space Center. I want to apologize for the poor audio quality of the clips on this episode. I know some things are hard to hear, but it's really the best audio I could find, and I found that over at Internet Archive. Well, I guess it's not over till it's over. Just when Lovell was feeling a little bit optimistic, a fresh new problem has occurred. It is times like this that I remember how hard it is to go to the moon and return safely. So many things have to work together to have success. Of course, there were problems on Apollo 11 and 12, but 13 was the most serious problems since the Apollo 1 accident. Do you think we just got lucky with Apollo 11 and 12? Perhaps that is another reason that we had to send up Apollo 14. Hey, didn't that age of Aquarius music sound kind of weird, distorted, and almost spooky? I wonder if it was the low batteries in the tape player or distortion when played through the communication system. It really sounded strange. All right, I have placed the audio, and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were very pleased to receive several donations over the past two weeks. Peter M. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Terry S. from Tennessee donated at the Apollo level. 
Mark, you sent in another donation this year and moves to the commercial level with Rocket Emoji. Mike L. from France donated at the Soyuz level. Gordon B. donated at the Mercury level. Larry S. from Maryland donated at the Mercury level. Eric W. donated at the Mercury level. Mark S. from Dusseldorf sent in another donation this year and moved to the Vostok level. Alan C. increased his pledge on Patreon to the shuttle level with rocket, moon, satellite, and shooting star emojis. Simon R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. John R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Shelby R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Carl H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Tim H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our Patreon donors are now at 203, with a goal of reaching 218 before the end of the year. So we are 15 Patreon supporters below the goal. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 398, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. That leaves us 20 donors short of the goal. Will we make our goal in 2018? Well, I would say it's going to be close. This is usually the time of year we receive our most contributions. And by the way, November contributions were the seventh highest for this year so far. So we're pleased about that. So, as we approach the end of the year, now is the time to sign up with Patreon. All Patreon donors in December will automatically get a longevity emoji promotion with their January contribution. So now is an excellent time to sign up at Patreon, or, if you prefer, make one-time donations. Make one in December and one in January and receive a longevity emoji. To make those donations, you can go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Ray Ramadore. Ray Ramadore, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, I probably am, I'm sorry. If you would email me and tell me your address, I will email this out to you. And thank you for supporting the podcast. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get next week's episode out by next Thursday. So long for now.